The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service here at uh, West Houston Bible Church. Before we begin our worship service, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity and freedom that we have to gather together to worship you. We recognize that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And that we come this morning because you loved us in such a way that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. And you have provided a perfect and sufficient redemption that is not based on anything that we do. And so, Father, we come together today to worship you and to praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. And we pray that all that we do honors and glorifies you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the power forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning in our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with Him ready to focus and study on God's Word. Scripture teaches us that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that you or I will ever commit. And that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, sin is no longer the issue in terms of our eternal life. However, when we sin, we still break fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but our ongoing rapport, that harmony, that ongoing walk with the Holy Spirit is fractured, and broken, and his sanctifying ministry is squelched or quenched or shut down. By confessing our sins, we realize that forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is restoration to fellowship, and the uh, ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is renewed. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word because it reveals to us that which we would otherwise not know. It gives us the ability to understand who we are as human beings, as fallen human beings. We understand your grace. 
We understand what you've provided for us. We understand how to live in a way that glorifies you as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit abiding in Christ. And Father tells us our destiny, that you have a plan and a purpose for us that is not just to have us with you in heaven, but that you are training us, preparing us for a future role ruling and reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom and then on into eternity. Father, as we study these passages related to the victorious believer, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that God the Holy Spirit would drive these challenges deep into our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's an old joke about Satan challenging Jesus to a contest to see who could write the best computer program. And so they each sat down at their computers and they started typing. And their fingers flew over the keyboards and it goes on and on and on for uh, days and weeks and months, who knows, in a timeless heaven. And then suddenly there's a clap of thunder and the power goes out. And Satan just screams in agony. And there's just a little slight smile of triumph on our Lord's face because we learned that Jesus saves. Well, last Sunday morning, Robbie didn't save. And I spent two hours working on a PowerPoint presentation yesterday morning, and in the midst of which I was cranking through some things that I was studying. And when I put the computer to sleep to bring it up here like I normally do, when I opened it, rather than opening to the PowerPoint, it crashed. I had to reboot, losing Either because I didn't save it or there was a glitch, whatever. But about three slides into the message last week, I realized that I was working off a draft that had problems. Compounding that, I had grabbed the wrong set of glasses, and I'm trying to problem solve and damage control, and my mind's four slides ahead trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And there were some things that came out that were... Uh, not exactly right because they were things that I had been working on and wanting to uh, once again just sort of reevaluate. So we're going to start over again and go back and just at the introduction and then we're going to move on. That's one reason some of you may not have been able to download the lesson this last week. There were technical difficulties. Okay, Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And then we have a comparison, which is key to the interpretation of this passage. To sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The key that we have to understand here in terms of interpreting this verse is the interpretation of overcomer. What is an overcomer? That's the key word we have to understand. It's the Greek word nikao. The verb is, I mean, the noun is nike, which is related to the Greek goddess of victory, which is where you get your Nike shoes. In this passage, it is an articular participle, which means it functions like a noun. And so it refers to those who are victorious, those who are winners, those who are conquerors, those who have overcome and have become winners, victorious in the Christian life. Now, last time, this is where we had the problem. I had a couple of slides up here related to what all resurrected believers have in common. That we all get raptured, we all get resurrection bodies, we all have per- perfect happiness, and we all 
have eternal life and spend eternity in heaven with our Lord. However, there are some distinctions that come across between victorious believers and defeated believers, and this is the slide where we had the problem. There are three things this should be, not the six you had last time. I, uh, they got That was where the problem was. So first of all, the victorious believer receives rewards, privileges, and blessings at the judgment seat of Christ according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Second, victorious believers have different levels of privilege and authority in the kingdom. Some will rule over different amounts, different areas. It is in the kingdom. This is on the earth. This is not like planets or anything. There's no indication of that in the scripture. It is the kingdom on the earth located with its center at the capital of Jerusalem and the focus on the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Mount, the Temple Mount, and the Millennial Temple indicated in Isaiah chapter 2. And then third, victorious believers will rule with Christ as kings and priests. That is related to the victorious believers. The defeated believers... This is the same, just review. Defeated believers fail to put doctrine first. They fail to count the cost. They fail to set priorities. They fail to apply the word. They don't grow spiritually. As a result, there is loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Often defeated believers, point number two, often defeated believers are wonderful people. They're successful in the things of temporal existence and the details of life, but they let the details of life and the obligations of family and uh, hobbies and work crowd out the priority of learning and applying the Word of God. Third, defeated believers become distracted by the details of life. They seek happiness in temporal realities, and their focus is on earthly things and not on heavenly things. Fourth, there's a temporal loss of blessing and happiness as a result because as believers who are carnal, who are not walking by means of the Spirit, they can only have temporal happiness based on the achievement of whatever details of life they think will make them happy, and sooner or later those disappear. Fifth, I said there's shame for them at the judgment seat of Christ because they realize what they've squandered. They realize that the only thing that they could take with them into eternity is what they acquired spiritually. And so there is shame, temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. There's a sixth, a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. They become disinherited, but they don't lose their salvation. We've covered this many times before. This is just simply summary. Seventh, they'll enter, but not inherit the kingdom. That's related to those passages that usually list a series of sins, and they say those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom is different from entering the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom has to do with rewards, inheritance, responsibilities. Eighth, their rewards will be destroyed in the lake of fire, as per uh, Revelation 21.8, which says, their part, that's how it's usually translated in the English, their part will be in the lake of fire. It lists the same usual list of suspects, the same list of sins that you have in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, 19-21, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. And these are, it says those who practice these things, their part will be in the lake of fire. And that word for part is the Greek word meros, which indicates an inheritance portion within a will or testament. 
So it's not their part in terms of their role or their destiny. That's that that may be a, an aspect of the English word part, but it's not uh, uh, related to the Greek word meros, which indicates their portion, their inheritance. So they've sacrificed their inheritance because of their focus on temporal things, and it gets burned up in the lake of fire in Revelation 21.8. Okay, back to our passage, Revelation 3.21. What does it mean to be an overcomer? I went through this last time and I pointed out that there was a problem in the way people interpret this based on 1 John 5.4. 1 John 5.4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now in that first phrase, whatever is born of God, in the Greek we have a perfect tense verb based on the Greek word ganao. That means it emphasizes completed action. So this is talking about a regenerate individual, a person who is born again, a person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit regenerates you. You are born again. You move from death to life. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So at that instant we are born of God. He is the one who regenerates us. And then it goes on to say, whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. So it looks, based on the English, at first blush as if regeneration equals overcomer but that's not true and I want to show you why that's not true this is an important issue but before we get back to this verse which may not be until next week we have to do an analysis of this whole concept in the New Testament in order to understand this phrase because it is a actually a technical phrase within the writings of the Apostle John And I want you to notice here that the object of overcoming isn't sin. The object of overcoming in 1 John 5, 4 is the world. Now, I'm going to tell you where we're headed with this. Is Overcoming is a function of the spiritual life. It's not a function of being born again. Because overcoming isn't related to sin, which was dealt with at the cross. Overcoming is related to what Christ did until he got to the cross by living his spiritual life in such a way that he set the precedent, the standard for our spiritual life in the church age. This is what I'm going to show. There's two basic interpretations of this concept of the overcomer. The first is the interpretation that every true believer is an overcomer. Every overcomer is a true believer. And therefore, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be an overcomer. And that would mean that every one of these overcomer statements in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that we have been studying would be applicable to every single believer. However, as we've studied in the past, these are incentive clauses. You have uh, in uh, modern sports a a good analogy where a player will be hired and he will be given a basic contract. And that no matter how he plays, whether he's injured or whatever happens, he gets a, a certain salary. 
But then there are incentives that are built into the contract that if he performs at certain levels, then there will be additional bonuses and rewards that will come his way. That's what happens at salvation. We enter into a relationship with God. We have a rock-solid, ironclad contract that we are going to be saved. We will uh, have eternal life. We will be in heaven forever. That is what's true of every single believer. But there are also incentive clauses that if you as a believer grow to spiritual maturity, there are going to be rewards. There will be special uh, blessings and responsibilities both in time and in eternity. And so this is the second option that only believers who advance in the Christian life are overcomers. They are the ones who take advantage of these incentive clauses and they don't just relax and coast saying, well, as long as I'm in heaven, it doesn't matter where, whether I'm in the slums or in the, uh, uh, in River Oaks or Beverly Hills of heaven, just as long as I'm there. And I've heard people say that. And they just, they, it doesn't matter. As long as I'm in heaven, I'll be happy. And that's just a rationalization for being a mediocre believer. So there are these incentive clauses. And the incentive clauses as overcomers is related to this whole concept, as we'll see, of overcoming the world. John 16.33 is a key passage for understanding this in relationship to Jesus Christ. Remember I pointed out that in Revelation 3.21 we're told, told that the Lord says, I will, to, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame. That's the key phrase, to understand our overcoming we have to understand His overcoming. That's the, that's the pattern. His overcoming provides the precedence for our overcoming. So in John 16:33, the Lord said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now we... Got about as far as this verse last time. A couple of things to note by way of observation is that this is part of the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse is the last address, uh, the last instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples before he went to the cross. John 13, they're in the upper room celebrating the Passover. At the end, he begins to give them instructions that are going to apply once he goes to the cross, once he ascends. He tells them about the fact that he is going to leave, but he is going to send another comforter. God the Holy Spirit is going to be the basis for living the spiritual life in the church age. John chapter 15, he talks about the importance of abiding in Christ. John chapter 16, he begins to interconnect those two concepts that he laid out in John 14, John 15. John 16, he concludes by saying these things, that is what I have just given you the instructions on from the time we sat down at the Passover meal where he emphasized the importance of confession of sin and ongoing cleansing to the prime mandate for the Christian life that we should love one another as he loved us to the empowerment for the Christian life, which is God the Holy Spirit, to the importance of abiding in Christ. And now he says, These things I have spoken in to you that in me, purpose clause, I have instructed you in these things for the purpose that you might have peace. 
See, he's already addressing believers so that the peace that we have here is not talking about that positional peace that belongs to every believer because we are justified by Christ. Let's think a minute about what Paul says in Romans. Romans chapter 3, actually in Romans chapter 2 and 3, Paul has laid down the argument that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion in Romans 3.23. The moral person can't meet God's standard. The Gentile doesn't meet God's standard. The uh, religious Jew doesn't meet God's standard. He covers all of that in those two chapters, and then he concludes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if all have sinned, how can we have a relationship with God? So he moves to Romans 4, and he says it's based on faith. As Abraham was justified by faith, so we are justified by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that instant God the Father imputes to you as a believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So therefore, even though you are still a sinner, even though we we still have a sin nature, even though we continue to fail and disobey God, we possess as a clothing, as it were, over that, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been accredited to our account. It's been imputed to us. In other words, it's been reckoned to us. It is our possession. So when God looks at you, He doesn't look at your sin. He looks at the fact that it is covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God then declares you to be just. It's a legal decision, not on the basis of who we are, what we've done, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. After Romans 4, where Paul has explained the doctrine of justification by faith, which he summarized in Galatians 2.16, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Paul then says in Romans 5.1, Therefore we have peace with God. See, man is born in a state of enmity with God, because we are sinners. But because you now possess righteousness, you have peace with God. This is a positional reality. You are now adopted among all of the different things that God does for us at salvation. We are adopted into his family. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to him. All of that is part of the package. But now, as we go through the, the, our temporal existence, how do we experience peace? This is not the peace of nonviolence. Uh, peace in the Bible is never juxtaposed to physical violence. It's always juxtaposed to in, uh, internal worry, fear, anxiety. It is uh, a focus on the fact that we have tranquility in our soul. We have contentment. We have a relaxed mental attitude. We are able to, therefore, go through adversity, testing, whether it is uh, te- the testing of suffering, the testing of of prosperity, we're able to go through these things uh, in an unperturbed manner if we're focused on, on doctrine. So Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. You want to realize peace in your life, that it involves dependence on the Holy Spirit, it involves abiding in me, it involves letting my words abide in you. That's how you can have peace on the basis of application of doctrine, application of the Word of God in your life. Then he goes on to say, in the next sentence, in the world, that is the position of every believer on a day-to-day basis. We live in 
the world. The Greek word here for world is cosmos. That's a sphere of our life. That is the culture around us, as we'll see. That is uh, the thinking, the thought forms, the world views of the civilizations and cultures down through history that are apart from the uh, word of God. So Jesus says, in the world, living in the cosmic system, you will have adversity. So another important element related to overcoming the world is this whole concept of testing and adversity. As we'll see, that's another piece of the puzzle that we have to pull, pull into our understanding of overcomer. He says, you will have tribulation, you will have adversity, but be of good cheer. That's the corollary to peace is joy. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Once again, we notice that the object of the verb nikao is the world. First John 5, 4, he who has been born of God overcomes the world. Here we see that Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So overcoming is related to the world. Now, an important thing to note here is that the verb nikao is a perfect tense verb. This is where grammar is very important in doing exegesis because the emphasis of a perfect tense verb is that the action of the verb is completed, the results are ongoing. What Jesus is saying is that at this point, the night before he goes to the cross, before he's arrested, I mean, before he goes to Gethsemane, before he gets arrested, before he's beaten, before he is sent to the cross, before he dies for our sins, he uses a perfect tense verb to state that he has already overcome the world. That is completed action. So whatever is happening the next day when he goes to the cross, it's not going to be related to overcoming the world. Somebody asked me a question last week, which was a very perceptive question, saw where I was going uh, with the rest of this, this uh, study, that on the cross, Jesus obviously is tempted as to whether or not he's going to continue the suffering and just, or just throw up his hands and say, I'm not going to put up with this horrible pain of receiving the imputation of the sins of the world. That temptation is sin. That's not worldliness. We have to maintain our understanding of what the difference is between the world and sin. Jesus says before he goes to the cross, the issue of the spiritual life doctrines in terms of overcoming the cosmic system is over with. It's completed. The next time we have a significant use of the perfect tense is in John chapter 19. Twice. John chapter 19 uses the verb teleao, uh, which is the verb for completion, that something is finished. And it is used in the perfect tense, indicated completed action. We're all familiar with this. It is what is translated as Jesus' final saying on the cross before he dies physically. He says, it is finished. To telestai. It is finished. It's completed. At that instant that Jesus made that statement, he's referring to the fact that, that his redemptive work on the cross... That which dealt with sin is over and done with before he dies physically. But it's, that's not just the only time that that word is used in John 19. In the setup for it, the Apostle John says, When it was finished, to Telestai. When it was finished, Jesus says, It is finished. There's that double emphasis there. The Holy Spirit wants us to make sure we understand that 
it was paid in full. To telestai is a word that would be written, for example, on the bottom of a bill once it was paid off, indicating paid in full. So Jesus has paid that price in full, but that's, that perfect tense is related to the payment of the sin penalty. That has to do with our salvation, phase one, justification. But overcoming the world was something that was accomplished by Jesus' life as he lived and matured and went through testing. That is why in John 16.33, he connects this to the statement that you have testing in life, but you can be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So overcoming the world is not related to salvation. It's related to the testing that every believer goes through in the process of spiritual growth. We've seen this many times. This is the standard operating procedure that God uses for bringing the maturity to, to bring the believer to maturity. James chapter one, for example, James says, "Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, because you know that the testing of what you believe produces endurance." And endurance will have its maturing result that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The only way you get from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity is to go through a series of divinely prepared tests which give you the opportunity to take what you learn in the classroom of the local church, what you learn about Scripture, the doctrines that you learn, and to take those and apply those to those real-time situations that you go through on a day-to-day basis. And as you apply the Word, then in, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, then God the Holy Spirit uses that to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So what we see here is that this key verse for understanding the concept of overcoming the world is found uh, em- emphasizes spiritual life reality. Therefore, we must conclude that overcoming the world is equivalent to the process of the process of sanctification. So, in conclusion, I have four points. First of all, before Christ went to the cross, He overcame the world. It's not sin payment related; it is sanctification related. That means that the world or worldliness is different from sin. Overcoming the world is a categorically different concept than having victory over sin. They're not the same thing. They're related. They overlap, but they're not synonymous. Third, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the sin penalty. However, in his life, Point number four, he overcame the thinking of the world, setting the precedent for our victory over the world. That's the summation. So when we look at a passage like Revelation 3.21, that he who who overcomes as I overcame will be granted to sit on the Father's throne, he's talking about not the fact that we're having a victory over sin or that we're saved, but that we have pursued maturity in the spiritual life. This is what's laid out in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
There Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, the first command is a present middle imperative, second person plural, meaning y'all. And y'all do not be conformed. The word conformed there is a Greek word, suskematizo, meaning to form something according to a pattern or mold. In other words, there is this thing out there called the world system. It, two different words are used in the Greek to describe this, cosmos and ion. Here it's ion indicating the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And it seeks to take you as an individual and pressure you, push you into that mold. It's like taking water and putting it into the molds of an ice tray. You can go down to the uh, grocery store and find ice trays with all kinds of of, uh, different shapes. You can get them in, in various shapes of stars and different things for Christmas. My personal favorite are the ice trays that have little shapes of Texas on them. But... um, that water has to conform to the shape of the ice tray. See, that's what happens in our thinking as you're born and you are reared in your family with your mom and dad, no matter how uh, great they were in terms of their spiritual life as being believers. Everybody has certain elements of the cosmic system, the culture in their thinking. Furthermore, you picked it up from teachers, from peers at school, from your friends. And there is the pressure from the world system around us to conform to it, to be, uh, let's coin a new word here, rather than being politically correct, we're going to be culturally correct. We're going to be cosmically correct. And that is the pressure of the world system around us. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. It's a present imperative indicating that this is supposed to be the standard operating procedure of every Christian's life. Don't be conformed. Don't be pushed into the mold of the worldview of your culture. See, one of the problems we have today is that most Christians don't know what the worldview of their culture is. So how do you know if you've been pressured into that mold? There's always that head-on conflict between the human viewpoint of the world view of your culture and the divine viewpoint of Scripture. And this is the whole process of the Christian life, is to get rid of the garbage in your soul that got there from the thinking of the cosmic system around you, whatever that is. And it varies from decade to decade and civilization to civilization and nation to nation. So if you're raised in an Asian culture in China, for example, you will have a different set of cultural values that are put on you than if you're raised in India or if you're raised in Europe and if you're raised in America, if you're raised in a non-Christian home where your parents have PhDs in science and they're uh, atheists or agnostics, which is just another word of say, way of saying I'm an atheist, but I don't want to admit it. Uh, Whatever the situation is, you're, you're, you're pressured by that to think that way. And if you're raised in New England or raised in California or raised in uh, Florida, you're going to think about things a different way. You go out to California, if somebody wears a coat and tie as a pastor to church, it's, it's extremely unusual. Everybody shows up in shorts and sandals because they don't really have a lot of respect for authority out there. And so they shows in the way they come to church. 
Uh, don't be conformed to this world. There are cosmic values that affect everything. Now, it affects how you view art, how you view music. That all comes out of cultural concepts and worldview. And this is really heavy stuff. And most, most pastors never address it from the pulpit for a number of different reasons, mostly because uh, when people have human viewpoint opinions about music and art and fashion ingrained in them from the cosmic system, and a pastor addresses it and tries to address it from a biblical viewpoint, they say, well, that's just his opinion. They don't want to go through the process of doing the philosophical analysis to understand how the metaphysical and epistemological, don't you love that? The metaphysical and epistemological presuppositions of human viewpoint postmodernism affects how, what, why you think certain types of dress and music is good. Because it's extremely subtle, but it's real. And that's part of what you have to do if you're going to get anywhere in, in the Christian life. So we're not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed, metamorpho, which means to change inwardly in a fundamental character or condition. So there is an internal transformation. The way you think, your values, will change as you get into the Word of God, and the Word of God gets into you. And it is related to your thinking, not your emotions, not how you feel about God, not how you feel when you sing certain hymns. Uh, that's irrelevant. It is a transformation of your mind, a renewing of your mind. And that means that it is fundamentally related to what uh, some people today in the church growth movement would just condemn as a cerebral ministry. All you want to do is talk about thought. We want to come and experience God. But they have no idea what they're doing. That's just pure, raw paganism. And you'll go to places like that and they don't ever talk about the Scriptures. So I have a little illustration here for you. Here's the typical American family. They look great. They all get, seem to get along together. They're involved in uh, all the wonderful community affairs. And, and yet they all have a basic problem. And that is that they're all evil. They have sin natures. Every single one of them has this nasty little sin nature inside of them. And they are all having to struggle with this. So we're going to assume that this is a family of believers. But see, they've got an internal battle just like every one of us. And that's with our sin nature. But the Bible says that's not the only enemy we have. That's our internal enemy. But we have an external enemy, the devil. Satan. And Satan, we're told, in First uh, Peter chapter 5, goes about the world like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may uh, devour. And he is attempting to dominate and control the world, that is, the inhabited planet. And he does that through a system of thinking. Actually, there are multiple systems of thinking, but they all have common characteristics. And this is called the world system. And so mom and pop and the kids are all living within the envelope of the cosmic system. And there is an internal enemy or a traitor that has a natural affinity to the thought forms of the world system, and that's their sin nature. So you have this thing in you that is like a magnet being attracted to iron filings. And as soon as something pops up in the culture that is 
sounds like good human viewpoint and it appeals to the trends of your sin nature, they just automatically go together and you don't think about it. It, it, it is, it's part of the system and you just naturally pick it up. And so, and everybody does this until they're saved and begin to, and they begin to learn doctrine. And so the devil uses this as a means of gaining control over, over the world. So we have to understand this concept of the world system because that's what overcoming is all about. We, Jesus overcame the world. You have to overcome the world. It's not just a matter of dealing with the sin nature, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul talks about in Romans 6. It is dealing with the, the overcoming the uh, cosmic system. So, as we look at this and we deal with the cosmic system, we have to understand its basic characteristics. And to do that, we'll go over to James chapter 3, verse 15. James 3.15 compares and contrasts the wisdom from above, which is divine viewpoint, that is, that is the thinking that is encapsulated in the teaching of the Scriptures, versus human viewpoint. See, no matter what's going on in the world, what you're thinking at any moment in time is either divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. There is only one divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is the unified system of thought expressed in the 66 books of the Bible. And God gives us a framework in the Scriptures so that we can think about everything in His creation. It may not be a textbook on history. It may not be a textbook on geography. It may not be a textbook on biology or philosophy. But it touches on everything necessary so that we can have a biblically consistent view of biology, geography, law, science, geology, philosophy. All these things are, have to be based ultimately on a biblical view of God, man, and creation. So in James chapter 3, verse 15, we have the explanation of the characteristics of what James is calling worldly wisdom or human viewpoint wisdom. He says, This wisdom does not descend from above. Its source is not from God, but it is, and he has three characteristics. It's earthly, sensual, King James version translation and demonic what do these words mean earthly means it's oriented to the earth as opposed to oriented to heaven it's time bound rather than infinite it's oriented to the thinking of creatures not the thinking of the creator the second characteristic is translated as sensual and some of your uh, bibles it might even be translated as natural which is not much better it is a translation of the greek uh, word sukikos, Greek noun sukikos. Suke is the root there, which is the Greek word for soul. And you have a soul, which is that immaterial part of your makeup that includes your mentality and your self-consciousness and your, your volition and your conscience. That's your soul. And the Bible makes a distinction between the unbeliever who is said to be sukikos or soulish and the believer who is said to be pneumaticos or spiritual. Because what happens at salvation, we talked earlier about regeneration, that something is born, 
Something comes into being at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, and we call that the human spirit based on the use of these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. As a sukikos relates to the unbeliever, pneumatikos relates to the spirit and the regenerate believer. So the wisdom that comes from, that does not come from above, human viewpoint wisdom is earthly or time bound, and it is the thinking of the unbeliever, the soulish person, the sukikos believer. It's related to the thinking of the unbeliever who has uh, no doctrine, no truth whatsoever. Third characteristic is it's demonic. What do you mean it's demonic? That means the thought forms of human viewpoint from uh, Socrates to Plato to Aristotle to uh, Neoplatonism up into modern times with Descartes and Kant and uh, all of the other secular philosophers, all of this is demonic. Well, that's a pretty strong charge. They had some good things to say. Satan always has good things to say because he wants his system to work. It's not the 98% truth it's how, that, that, that's in Satan's deception that's, that's really a problem. It's the 2% lie which changes the orientation of the 98% that might be true. And that's what makes it a good deception is it's very close to the truth. Therefore, it appears to work. Well, how do you spot it? Ah, you spot it because you know the truth. You know the truth. And the truth comes from the Word of God. This is why Jesus said if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You have to know the Word of God. You have to know Scripture. And that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit produces what the Bible calls discernment. So you have to be able to analyze these things. Well, demonic thought and human viewpoint thought are the same thing because they partake of the same characteristics of Satan's fall. Arrogance, autonomy, hostility toward God. Satan was arrogant. He wanted to be like God. Because he wanted to be like God, that immediately set him opposed to God. He was antagonistic to God. There's an emphasis on independence from divine authority, which leads to a hostility toward God. So this forms the bedrock characteristics of worldliness. So let's try to analyze this just a little bit before we wrap up this morning. First of all, worldliness is the thought of the creature Lucifer in rebellion against God. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28 outlines Lucifer's thinking at the time of the fall. Isaiah chapter 14 outlines Satan's five eye wills where he is stating his will over against God's will and that he wants to function like the creator, not like a creature. As part of this, there is a arrogance. There is a hostility toward God. Arrogance leads to a hostility towards God. That's why I have that arrow, the arrow there. The arrogance will always lead you to hostility toward God because arrogance is saying, I will, as opposed to what God wills, and that will always develop into a hostility or an antagonism to the truth of God's Word. A second characteristic is autonomy, and that leads to an, a declaration of independence from God that I can do it on my own. I can find meaning, joy, happiness, stability, contentment in life without having to be radically 
unconditionally, solely dependent on the thinking of God's Word. I, I can find some level of independence where I can grab hold of something. I can, and religion is usually 90% right and about 10% wrong. And some religions are more wrong than others, but there's that element. There's always an element of truth there, because Satan knows that he's he's operating within a world that has been established by God, and so there are certain absolutes he can't get away. He can't reinvent the world, so he's got to make things conform as closely as possible to the way God made things, and that and that's what gives it that deceptive quality. Worldliness can be defined because it, it comes from the Greek word cosmos, which has the idea of adornment, the idea of organization. We get our English word cosmetics from that word when a woman uh, puts on her face, organizes her makeup, uh, adorns herself for beauty. So it's a, it adds the element of attractiveness. The worldliness is an orderly organized system of thought providing the creature with a rationale for living independently of his creator. I can make life work without God. And so it gives birth to a variety of different philosophies of life, different uh, religions, that somehow we can make this work. We don't need to be dependent upon God as the scriptures show. Second element is that worldliness is the thought structure which provides the rationalizations for the operation of the sin nature. See, some people would, you know, older fighting fundies, as we used to call them, would say that worldliness is is dancing and drinking and uh, chewing tobacco or smoking. That was worldliness. That, worldliness is thought. Worldliness is the thought structures that establish values and priorities and how you know what you know and What's the ultimate reality that informs everything? Worldliness is more subtle than the overt actions. It is the the thought forms that give birth to the overt actions. Thus, I say it provides the rationalizations for the operations of the sin nature. And third, thus we conclude worldliness relates to the post-salvation life of the believer. It's are you going to live on divine viewpoint or are you going to live on human viewpoint. A couple of quotes I want to give you from Dr. Chafer. Dr. Chafer is the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a systematic theology, and in volume two, from about page 90 on, he has a very uh, thought-provoking analysis of the cosmic system. He says on page 90, the cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to his ideals, that's his value system, his aims, that's his purposes or direction, and his methods. See, methods aren't neutral. How you do what you do is as important as what you do. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. You can do church the wrong way. You can try to do worship the wrong way. That's what happened uh, in the Old Testament with some of the priests who rebelled against God, brought strange fire into the temple. God said, I'll tell you how to worship. It's not based on what makes you feel like you worship, but on how I tell you there's an objective standard for worship. Uh, nobody understands that today. Um, methods are important. 
It is, Chafer goes on to say, it is civilization. That's a key concept. It is civilization. It's culture. Uh, Asian culture, Western European cultures, uh, uh, American culture, uh, it's uh, uh, primitive cultures, it's advanced cultures. It has this idea of the, everything that's included within the concept of a civilization from, from art to literature to drama to law to philosophy. It's all part of the package. He says, it is civilization now functioning apart from God. See, there's that autonomy concept. A, a civilization in which none of its promoters really expect God to share. There's a lot of God talk, but there's nothing about God that's really there. There's verbiage, but there's no substance. The promoters really don't expect God to be an active, involved part. God well, you, God talks about salvation. He talks about your spiritual life, but, but he doesn't have much to say about history or philosophy or politics or law or economics. But see, if God is the creator of everything, then God has something to say about everything because he created it. Economics are what they are because God set up the structures. Biology is what it is because God set up the kinds. Geology is what it is because God created the rocks. History is what it is because it's the outworking of God's plan. And this is what we mean when we say that to teach the Word of God, we have to teach the whole counsel of God, which relates to every area of human intellection, not just marriage and family. Schaefer says, A civilization which none of its promoters really expect God to share, who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects, nor do they ascribe any causativity to Him. He's just left out of the picture. He goes on to say, this system embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, its education, culture, religions of morality, and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It is what he sees, what he employs. To the uncounted multitude, it is all they ever know so long as they live on this earth. It is properly styled the satanic system, which phrase is in many instances a justified interpretation of the so meaningful word cosmos. It is literally a cosmos diabolicus. It is, Satan is the one who energizes this system. Ten pages later on page 100, Schaefer says, Next to the lie itself, the greatest delusion that Satan imposes reaching to all unsaved and to a large proportion of Christians, is the such supposition that only such things as society considers evil could originate with the devil. See, a big part of cosmic thinking relates to religion or morality or good things. They're just good things that are done a wrong way. and They're, they're oriented to other things in a wrong way. So he says, see, the, the lie that Satan deceives us with is that that it's only the things that we think of as evil that originate with the devil. He goes on to say, if indeed there be any devil, that is what the world says, if there be any devil to originate anything. It is not the reason of man, but the revelation of God, which points out that governments, morals, education, art, drama, literature, music, poetry, art, commercialism, vast enterprises and organizations. 
and much of religious activity are included in the cosmos diabolicus. That is, the system which Satan has constructed includes all the good which he can incorporate into it and be consistent in the thing he aims to accomplish. He loves to include the good because that's what sucks people in. Schaefer goes on to say, A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world... I just love this statement. Think about this. This is so insightful. A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world, you know, the, uh, the axis of evil, the Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins, the uh, evil uh, Islamic empire, all these things, whether that exists due to Satan's intention to have it so or whether it indicates Satan's inability to execute all that he has designed. The probability, Chafer says, is great that Satan's ambition has led him to undertake more than any creature could ever administer. Revelation declares that the whole cosmos system must be annihilated, not its evil alone, but all that is in it, both good and bad. God will incorporate nothing of Satan's failure into that kingdom which he will set up in the earth. The point is that the cosmic system is a system of thought. It's, it's, it's values. It incorporates everything that's part of life. And we either look at it from God's viewpoint or from man's viewpoint. Man's viewpoint is considered earthly, uh, natural, uh, that is, of the unbeliever, and demonic. Jesus overcame that. It's what he's talking about in John 16:33. I have already completed the victory over the cosmic system. How did he do that? When did he do that? What are the principles involved in that? That's what we have to understand to apply the principle in terms of what we're hearing in Revelation 3.21, that to be an overcomer, we have to do it as Jesus overcame, and that is the path to ruling and responsibility in the Millennial Kingdom. We'll come back and look at Jesus' pattern for overcoming the world next week, next Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study these things, to realize that the battle is not just against personal sin, but it's against thought and thought forms, that we are not to be put into the mold of the world system, into their thinking, their value system, their philosophical frameworks, but we are to think consistently about Uh, think consistently with regard to everything in life on a biblical basis, that there is a comprehensiveness to the Word of God that addresses every area of human uh, intellection, every area of human activity, every area of human thought. Are we addressing it from a divine viewpoint or from a human viewpoint? Father, we pray that you would enable us through the study of your Word to begin to apply the eternal truths of your Word to these things. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Perhaps you never took the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you realize that you were born a sinner and under the condemnation of eternal death, but that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for you on the cross and that the free gift of eternal life is offered to you And all you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. 
It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of cleaning up your life or being involved in religious operation and ritual. It's a matter of simply trusting in Jesus Christ. Paul said it simply in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.